This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and I have the great pleasure today to speak with Professor Luke Clements uh, about his latest book, Clustered Injustice and the Level Green. Now just to introduce our guest, Luke Clements is the Cerebro Professor of Law and Social Justice at the School of Law at Leeds University. He practiced as a solicitor between 1981 and 2021 and in that capacity had conduct of a number of cases before the European Commission and Court of Human Rights. In 1996, he was a solicitor who took the first Roma case to reach the Strasbourg Court, and that case was Buckley against the UK. Uh, Professor Luke Clements, welcome to the show. Lovely to join you. Thank you. Great to have you. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Clustered Injustice and the Level Green? Um, personally, uh, I'm a fairly privileged person, white, male, pale, stale. Um, but, uh, in my practice, I was sort of confronted with people that who experienced disadvantage. Um, and I, as a solicitor, tried to battle against those individual injustices for a long time. Uh, I began to realize that taking cases to the European Court of Human Rights for a disadvantaged group like Roma or for disabled people or children didn't really solve the sort of multiple problems they experienced. And so I migrated increasingly towards policy and uh, academic work with a view to trying to sort of formulate change. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um... Let's talk a little bit more about your book. So you open it with this fantastic quote by Stephen Wexler. Um, and he writes that poor people do not lead settled lives into which the law seldom intrudes. They're constantly involved with the law in its most intrusive forms. Poverty creates an abrasive interface with society. Poor people are always bumping into sharp legal things. The law school model of personal legal problems of solving them and returning the clients to the smooth and orderly world in television advertisements doesn't apply to poor people. Now, I'm wondering, in this context, in this sort of frame, can you tell me a little bit about the meaning of your book, Clustered Injustice? What does it mean? Okay. I mean, before I do that, I'd really like to pay homage to Stephen Wexler. I mean, his um, yellow paper just sort of it's one of those papers you read, and it was a great friend of mine who told me to read it, that it hits you like a freight train, really, that you, you know, that there are some papers, and you'll know very well, Jane, that that, 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 that just change you. Um, and this one did. It suddenly, 
you thought, well, yeah, that's right. You know, I, I, I'm, I didn't have a law degree, so I didn't learn all that clever stuff. Um, and so it came to me late. But then I realized that, you know, I could conceptualize what my clients experienced in terms of um, the law's inability to deal with complex, entangled networks of problems that when you take one problem out and you resolve it, you, you don't return them, as he says, to the orderly lives of the television adverts. The, the, another problem comes along and fills the vacant space. Um, and there is no, um, you know, normal um, except for these sort of complex clusters of problems. And so, uh, yeah, that changed the way I was doing things dramatically. And that makes sense. And I do think that really came through in the book that, you know, once a single sort of legal problem is picked out and solved, there are so many more um, that a person who faces disadvantage may be subject to. So then can you tell me? Oh, yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, go on, far away. Oh, I was just going to ask, can you tell me about the nexus between disadvantage and legal problems? Yeah, yeah. what I'm sort of interested in is is disadvantage, and I sort of describe disadvantage in a different way, slightly different way to Stephen Wexler, in the sense that he's he's an article about poor people, and poor people um, do disadvantage, you know, big time. Uh, but there are other people who I think are disadvantaged, and I deal with a lot. So my uh, chair-in-law, my research centre, is funded by a disabled children's charity. Uh, Cerebra. And uh, the the charity, it, it has very large number of people coming to it, but many of them are wealthy. Um, many of them have not, not perhaps mega wealthy, but they have money, but they cannot negotiate the legal system for their disabled child who has a health problem, an education problem, a social security problem, a transport problem, you know, um, mega different types of problems. And the child is growing and therefore it's moving through different bureaucratic processes and they are then getting dumped with new additional um, problems. So I describe disadvantage as people to whom the state should or has actually got legal obligations and the state fails to discharge those obligations and their social welfare obligations like health and social care and education and so on. So you could be, I mean, we, we, in, our, in our research centre, we say that we try and solve problems for people who don't have sisters who are barristers, people that don't have access to those privileged networks. But actually, you know, I've got a few friends who are barristers who say, well, Luke, um, you know, I can't get through this system either. I need help. That's really interesting because, um, I mean, even as trained as a trained lawyer, I I do think the legal system is really complex, and especially I think when you're putting your own yourself through it, or you know the interests of your child, it's not easy to um, sort of even solve things as a strictly legal problem because I don't think they necessarily are. Yeah, I I was really interested. You know, when we were having a exchange, you were saying, "Are these legal problems?" Um, and I think there are problems created by the law um, or or maybe by the bureaucracy that underpins the law, but I think it's difficult to distinguish those two. Uh, 
And the problem is the way law is transacted in the sense that, you know, um, that it likes to break down individual legal problems or, or, or clusters of problems into individual problems. And so the book is, um, it's homage to another piece of work um, um, by, by John Seddon, which is about systems theory, that you can simplify not by breaking down fractionating individual problems, but by actually um, moving backwards, seeing the bigger picture. So lawyers, when they're presented with a cluster of problems, say, well, this is a education problem, this is a transport problem, this is a health problem. And then they, they even then subdivide those. And, and, and judges insist on that, you know. I, I, you know, what are your, you know, your skeleton argument? You've got to have 10 different points. And that sort of fractionating down into its sort of elemental particles. But in that breaking down, you, you lose sort of the interconnections that are so important um, because you can't consider these problems in isolation. But judges and courts can't really do um, complex compound problems. They, they say that's politics. Well, it's not. It's just that the law... Uh, Parliament um, in the UK, when it has enacted laws, has done this without considering those interconnections. And that makes it incredibly difficult, that the only way you can, you can resolve some of these issues is to zoom out and see the bigger picture. And of course, tra judges have been trained their whole lives not to do that. Yeah, of course, that's the first thing you learn in law school, the IRAC sort of formula, like identify the issue, what's the rule, apply it, and then conclude. And that's like how you ace exams. And I don't yeah. know how much it changes. Actually, as you say, like when you read judgments, you can see that happening. Um, yeah. And, and it gives you the legal answer. Uh, but it loses, um, but, but, but it, it's pretty irrelevant to solving the sort of clusters of problems that an individual has. I'm not saying the law doesn't have a real role, and I don't know that you can reform the law the way it does that. But when you're confronted as a lawyer with people with clustered problems, you've got to realise that delivering that service isn't really necessarily going to be what they need. And as a lawyer, you're responsible for trying to deliver justice, not just legal outcomes. And so you're going to have to think around that. I mean, some of my colleagues have said, you know, it's a sort of this book is an attack on specialist lawyers, ivory tower lawyers, but it's not. I think you need those because that's how the system works. But you need something else to help people through that process. Yeah, and I think um, that comes across this sort of idea that um, problems are interconnected and there are implications which flow from this. Um, that really came across in your book. Um, I want to turn now to another question. So I've read various authors who write about concepts such as vulnerability, such as, for example, Martha Feynman, disadvantage and undue privilege. Um, I read some things by Catherine Sicking. And I want to ask you, in the context of clustered injustice, firstly, how would you define these concepts and what do they mean in a real-world sense? Yeah, well, um, I suppose the other sort of 
homage this book is to is to Martha Feynman, um, just a, a, a brilliant um, uh, U.S. Uh, legal theoretician who, you, who, 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 who until recently was also at Leeds. Um, Martha um, goes into the difficult area of vulnerability, um, and it is a sort of contested ground. Um, and in the work that I do with disabled people, it's it's a word that is almost taboo that, that, that uh, to use this phrase vulnerable. Um, but she 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 really deserves she she really deserves amazing reading because what she's arguing about is this wider concept um, that that is becoming very well established uh, is that vulnerability well, we're all vulnerable. Um, and to label some people vulnerable is absurd. We're all flesh and blood. We could all, you know, in five minutes time, be in a hospital bed or, you know, in a car crash or something like that. And we are all surrounded by sharp edges that, that, that could be very dangerous to us. And those aren't just um, physical problems, but they're legal problems, the, the, the problems that you could be sued or you could fall the wrong side of the law or you could break the law. Um, and therefore vulnerability is universal and there's no such thing as invulnerability. We're all very vulnerable to these, um, these whims uh, of nature. But what the state has to do is to build resilience. It has to give us the um, support to enable us to overcome that. Um, Many people overcome that because they've got money, but the state should ensure that people have enough money um, so that they can weather downturns, losses of jobs and things like that. The state has got to provide a healthcare system, obviously. Um, it's got to provide social care support for disabled children, because if they don't do that, then their mothers, who are the primary carers, you know, it's in highly gendered caring is, won't be able to work. And the average mother um, in... Um, Australia, I know, uh, and in much of America and the UK, ends up with half the pension part of men because of caring responsibilities. Caring responsibilities are the most important thing that humanity does. We, none of us would live without it. And yet we have a system that punishes carers by um, making them poor and creating these innumerable problems to getting their children's support arranged. So she's talking about having institutions of the state that respond to the needs of people who um, need some support to build resilience that uh, many privileged families already have. And, and the thing I love about Martha is that she <coughs> isn't really interested in poor people uh, justifying their right to have support. She's really focuses on the rights of privileged people to that privilege. You know, why are they privileged in a way? Where, where does that come from? Um, you know, how can they justify that effectively? Um, it's a sort of, it's, she's not a great fan of rules, but it's, um, it's it's very very good. So Martha will sometimes say, you know, her concern is not about the minimum wage; it's about the maximum wage. Um, you know, how do people justify these things? And so she's very much into this is what a responsive state should do. Um, and coming from the US, 
she comes from a background where I think the the state doesn't isn't very responsive. In the UK, the state's actually created a pretty good welfare system. It's just not funding it, you know, and therefore the law exists, but the means don't exist. So they're slightly different, but I think her analysis is really powerful. Yeah, I'm also a huge fan of her work. So I really enjoyed reading about that um, in your book. I guess, actually, this is probably a good space to talk about in the context of sort of universal vulnerability. Um, The other part of the title of your book is um, The Level Green. And so the next chapter of the book, um, you sort of reference the level playing field and the idea of the level green. By the way, I did like, um, just for listeners, throughout the book there's sort of um, games and sporting uh, metaphors uh, dotted throughout and they were, it, was, it was really interesting um, and it sort of really helps the reader to um, get the point sort of straight away. So I, I very much enjoyed that. Um, but anyway, can you tell me a little bit about this idea of the level green? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if it translates. Uh, I live in the uh, beautiful English county called Herefordshire and there I think we've got one of the oldest bowling greens in the world. It was 1495, I think it was laid down and it's still being used. And in England, and I don't know if, if this translates, we have a game called bowls, which is rolling um, seemingly round balls along a level playing field, a very flat, beautifully mown lawn. This one's been mown for almost, what, 600 years. Um, and it's as flat and perfect and true as possible. Uh, but when you watch bowls, you see that the balls don't run true. They, they, as they slow, they curve more and more. And that's because the balls themselves are loaded. They've got a weight inside them that makes them veer as they go. When, they, when they're initially bowled, they go very straight. And as they slow, they, they veer away. And, I, you know, and these bowling greens have been rolled for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I liken that to the, the legal system in which we operate. But I think the system that everybody operates in is that what we've got to realize is that although courts and judges will generally do everything they can to create a level playing field, to make things fair for everybody, they use then a bowl, they use the law, and the law is loaded. The law, the further it rolls on, the more inevitable it is. It's loaded against the interests of people who live with disadvantage. And I've seen that in all the sort of 40 years of my legal practice. And that's in a way one of the reasons I left uh, being a full-time lawyer, because I could see that we were trying to use a system that was so loaded against uh, Roma gypsies, disabled people, single mothers, former criminals, children who have been abused in you know local authority care. It was so loaded against those that it was very difficult indeed to get just outcomes, even though the judges were leaning over backwards to try and make it fair. And so, um, you know, the, the, the law, the justice may be fair, but the law is loaded. It's made by people who experience advantage. You know, people in parliament are wealthy. They are the people that have the power. And even if they're good people, they don't understand uh, what 
it is like to live with severe disadvantage. Um, and we as lawyers, once you've been practicing for a while, you forget that. Just as when you're playing bowls, you think it's natural that bowls will, you know, veer away from their target. Um, that's part of the game. We internalize this and we then, you know, we equate law and just, injustice. I know it's an old sort of, um, uh, I don't know, adage, but, 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 but we do forget that. Um, we think that they're the same and we have got to constantly remind ourselves every time we open a law book or we go into court that if you're acting for somebody with disadvantage, the law is loaded. It's heavily against you. I think that's such an um, interesting analogy and it's such a great point because I, I think you're, you're really right. As Once we become lawyers, especially, we, um, whether you came from a position of privilege or not, you put yourself in this um, position of privilege uh, financially but also just in terms of knowing how the law works and having a better ability to sort of navigate the system than people who aren't in that sort of space. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I did actually, I liked your uh, metaphor of bowls. It's like, I used to play quite a bit in Australia. It's great, great game. I don't know if it translates to the US, but um, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Um, uh, yeah, that's relief. Yeah, no, no, it's great. Um, it's very popular. Even amongst young people now, they have barefoot bowls. So to try and get young people in, it's, yeah. Um, and the balls curve away and it's it's a great day out. Um, so just I want to talk a little bit more about how you just said the law is loaded against people who are disadvantaged. And specifically, you examine some legal maxims which sort of have the potential to perpetrate or create injustice. For example, you analyse um, the principle of remoteness and exterpa causa. And for any non-lawyers out there, that means that he who comes to equity must come with clean hands. So basically, if you want the court's help, you you know, you have to be, um, have clean hands sort of yourself. So, so can you tell me how these legal maxims potentially perpetuate injustice? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, this is a sort of common law point, I imagine. Um, I don't know enough about civil code systems, but these are things that we're taught the law and, and, when I was taught the law, you were taught the law is the law. Um, today, I think most good universities teach law in its sociological context and explain that, um, you know, there's a lot of injustice there and particularly sort of colonial injustices. Um, and so we're taught equity in the same way. Now, equity is about the law of trusts. Uh, and it was really emerged in Victorian period to protect the wealthy. Um, but we're never taught that. We're just sort of taught that equity is um, about fairness and justice, which, of course, is is pretty debatable. Uh, and equity sort of builds a bit on some of the maxims of Roman law. And one of them, as you say, is ex terpi causa non actio iuria. Uh, uh, in the UK, you're not allowed to use Latin maxims anymore in court. You have to say oh, the clean that. hand doctrine. Okay. Um, so they banned Latin, which is great. Um, but it's this idea that 
if you and your 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 colleague have been highwaymen and you've stolen some money, um, you can't go to court and then claim that your co-robber hasn't given you a fair share, that those who come to court um, must come with clean hands. But of course, clean hands is really interesting for me because a lot of my clients have dirty hands through work, through poverty. Um, and um, often it's cause you mustn't, law mustn't be involved in a base cause, but base causes are defined by the law. Um, the the law can define what is a crime. So in the book, I look at some quite a lot of stuff about begging or about rough sleeping for homeless people. Those are crimes in the UK, but they are things that happen to poor people. Um, And therefore, um, those people have uh, that problem. I cite a case um, concerning Roma because I used to do a lot of work about um, gypsies. Now, Roma in the UK have really nowhere to stop and camp because in the UK, as in um, France and Ireland, Roma still, gypsies still travel a bit in caravans and park on the, the highway, the, the laybys and the greenswards. And gradually in the UK, it has been criminalized. And then the Highway Act says that anywhere, it, it, not just the main tarmac road, but it, the verges are highway and it's a criminal offense to park on the highway. Um, and uh, so the people I were acting for, they had nowhere to live. They were a bit like Indians in North America being off reservation. It was a criminal offense. They had to go back and uh, live in these sort of concrete ghettos, which uh, the councils have sort of built for them. But in many cases, there weren't even those, because the, although the duty on the council to build these sites um, had existed for many years, it had never been um, complied with by the councils. And so uh, the, uh, there were case concerned <coughs> um, travellers who were um, <coughs> on the highway and... Uh, they were then prosecuted uh, for blocking the highway. And uh, we, we took a case um, against the, the government because the government had, um, in order to stop travellers uh, parking on the highway, they had ditched it uh, to make it impossible to get their vehicles across it. But they put huge piles of roadstone on laybys um, to stop uh, people going on. And so we issued proceedings against the government to say that they were blocking the highway too, because it's illegal to pour a mound of stone onto a lay-by just as much as it is to park a a gypsy caravan on it. And when it got uh, to the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal really were in a difficult point because gypsies are incredibly unpopular in the UK. And clearly those prejudices do extend to the judiciary with the greatest respect to the judiciary. They do. Um, and this, therefore, was sort of um, people with dirty hands coming to court, um, pointing to a government that had to, to a government that had consistently failed to comply with the law of creating sites for them. And the effect of that problem was that tra- travellers had nowhere to park, and so were on the highway. Uh, and yet, the prosecuting authorities were picking on the travellers not the government for who was doing the same thing. And the case was rejected by the uh, 
could appeal on the basis of dirty hands, that these people, it may be unlawful for the government to pile up um, laybys, but it wasn't possible for a, a gypsy to argue that because they were only arguing it because they too wanted to park on the side. And, and, and I remember at the time that that sort of just everybody thought, oh, yeah, that's a neat answer, end of story, the law's been done. But, of course, anybody with a soul could see the blind, blinding injustice of that. And I cite another European Court of Human Rights case um, <clears throat> where, you know, to, to the eternal credit of the Maltese judge, he just, he just spelled out how absurd that argument was in a case. Um, uh, and yet courts... Um, lawyers trot out these maxims day in, day out, as if they were self-evident truths. Um, they never critically analyse them. And one of the things I was just hoping in the book is that you know judges would never trot out these maxisms uh, to, to think that they were, you know, unqualified truths. Um, Sorry, rant over. No, no, it's it's super interesting because I think that's true. Even at law school, we're sort of taught this to just accept that these doctrines are just the truth, um, regardless of whether it makes sense, regardless regardless of whether it produces injustice. This just sort of it is what it is, and we just apply it. Um, and I think it goes sort of all the way through. Yeah. Um. I mean, ex terpi causa. Terpi uh, is a sort of a Latin word, but it also means ugly, deformed, de debased. Um, and so people who are ugly, deformed or dirty, you know, which are all the people, you know, objectively that I'm really interested in, people who have impairments, who have poverty. The law is loaded against them. The law can make them criminals. So when they go to court and say this is unfair, the court will say, "Well, you can't argue that because you're a criminal. You're 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 camping illegally. You're busking. You're you're begging." Um, well, hey, you know. This so yeah, so I have a, a long issue on on begging as well. Yeah, no, I mean, and it is these sort of um, people who. Uh, often the, the criminality is sort of due to necessity or um, a limited range of other really meaningful choices. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it, it offends principle. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in, in begging as a, a crime um, because it embarrasses people. Um, and in there I quote from the US um, uh, case law because I think because begging is basically a British common law uh, problem created. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's got a long background, but it's a British common law principle uh, that 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 it was pretty distasteful when it was imported to in the US. And so, some of the judgments there are just beautiful, um, where they just point out the absurdity of, of criminalising this. But we we it still is a crime in the UK. And so, then, would you say that? public bodies enjoy any specific kind of privilege in this space? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly do. Um, you know, uh, they enjoy the privilege of money, um, mm. which is which is just the enormous privilege. Um, I, I think that the rule of law in the common law is one of the um, 
the greatest things that the, the common law has ever done. Um, so that the idea that the law cuts both ways, even though the law may be biased, it does cut both ways. And if Parliament says a, a local authority or a public body should do something, then in theory, the courts should make them do that unless the applicant uh, falls foul of a doctrine like ex terpi causa or something um, or, or remoteness. But um, public bodies have money um, and they have even, you know, they have basically unlimited recourse to money, in, 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 particularly in, in Anglo-Saxon areas. So that's the privilege they have. Um, and if you don't have a generous legal aid system, then, you know, you're going to be in serious problems. I mean, in England, um, in, in the United Kingdom, we have the, the National Health Service, which is one of the biggest public bodies in the world. Um, and, and, and there isn't the very, very limited legal aid now. So, you know, is somebody falls foul of that system? Is it really going to take on something that, you know, has resources of 150 billion pounds a year? And the answer is not unless it's completely and utterly clear. Um, so that's the privilege they have. Uh, yeah, they have, and they are entitled, I think, to privilege. In Martha Feynman's terms, I think public bodies are entitled to privilege. They're making a lot of very difficult decisions hundreds and thousands of times a day. And it's quite clear that um, people shouldn't be able to sue them if they don't like those decisions unless they are um, they're sort of maladministrative decisions. They're, they're taken on improper grounds. And therefore, there, there should be a restriction on taking cases against public bodies. But Martha would say, well, are these restrictions justified? Um, are, is that privilege earned? And the answer is, it's earned to a degree, but not to the degree that exists in, in the UK. N nothing like that. And the government is in the process of passing further legislation to further restrict questioning public bodies. And I know the focus of the book isn't private law, but um, you did give a really good example about the McDonald's libel case. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about this because I think you sort yeah. of touched on the issues about the relative privilege that you that comes with money. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I touch on private law in the sense that it often amuses me as a, as an academic in a law school with lots of brilliant, wonderful scholars. And occasionally you get law, and we teach it law in its social context, uh, law in the real world, law not as if it's a self-evident truth either. You know, And we do get the occasional student that doesn't like jurisprudence or something like that because they say it's political, you're looking at Marxists and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't come to law school to study sociology and you sort of say you know i wanted to come and study a straightforward subject like company law or land law and you think well there's nothing more political than land law or or, or company law where you know incredible um strategies to protect wealth of people who've largely stolen the money three or four hundred years ago um uh, big crimes but i i do think the mcdonald case is a sort of classic example of the myopia that lawyers can get themselves into. Uh, so the McDonald case for 
colleagues that don't really um, understand it is the fact that McDonald's in the UK um, was uh, the subject of quite a lot of protests from people who would camp outside and hold posters saying um, that McDonald's, you know, treats its workers badly, it, it, it treats its animals badly, it's, their products are dangerous and so on. And of course, then McDonald's <coughs> threaten these people that if they don't um, stop doing that, they will sue them. McDonald's with billions of dollars of resources and these people often unemployed or on low incomes and they would be devastated. So that you have these um, injunction actions are very much perfected in the US where big corporations just terrify the life out of individuals with legal letters threatening you know, enormous uh, consequences. Uh, and uh, that's defamation. And defamation is a law I find incredibly difficult to understand how it can be um, fully justified, because it's really only rich people that use that, that, that law. Um, but a couple of the people refused to comply with it. So McDonald's did then give them the full works and sued them. And I think the case is the longest civil law case ever in the UK. I think it ran for hundreds of days. And McDonald's spent millions of pounds on this. There's no legal aid in the UK for defamation. So these two individuals went through the whole process up and down through the High Court to the Court of Appeal. And at the end, um, <clears throat> the judge said that they had defamed uh, McDonald's and ordered tens of thousands of pounds of compensation. And the, the individuals claimed that it was unfair. And the judge and the Court of Appeal was at pains to say, no, the process had been fair. And I, I don't want to really have a go at judges because if you look at it from their perspective, the system was fair. They both had the opportunity to call evidence. They both had the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. They both, in theory, they had all the rights to natural justice. It's just that McDonald's had a team of high-level lawyers costing millions of pounds. And these individuals really just had um, the ability themselves uh, to, to do this. Um, and I think to strangers they would find it extraordinary that judges could say that was fair but from the narrow perspective of the law it probably was the case then goes to the european court of human rights <clears throat> who unanimously including the british judge say that obviously this wasn't fair um, it was a travesty um, and you either change defamation law or you give people legal aid and of course in, in the book, I conclude that giving people legal aid really wouldn't help. Um, you just got to drastically change or completely repeal defamation law. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was fascinating to read about and this sort of assumption that people 
um, that litigants come to the court with equality of arms, I think it really sort of blows that out of the water. Um, they must have been incredibly brave and naturally resilient. I, I couldn't imagine. Um, yeah, and, and actually the, you, it would be very interesting for you if people read around that case, mm -hmm. some of the other stuff is quite extraordinary about the role of the state in that case um, and the role of the police. Uh, the whole thing is another classic British disaster area. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. So I want to um, return to one of the main themes of the book, which is also um, the next chapter. And the chapter's titled, What's Your Problem? Personal Legal Problems is Singular. Now, you write that going to the heart of the book's critique, that the traditional approach to solving legal problems is to break them down into isolated instances and essentially deal with them as discrete issues. But the sort of result is there's this sort of reductionism and compartmentalisation of problems. Do you want to talk a bit more about this? I know you've touched on it, but perhaps you could expand on it. Yeah, I think... I suppose I'm setting up the problem to to resolve it um, in, in in the final chapters to say that this just doesn't work, but it is um, the only way lawyers can operate. I mean, I trained as a scientist, you know, at university, and we did the periodic table, which showed the elements, but they only became interested when they were in combination with other elements, and you get compounds and things like that. But lawyers can't do that; they can only think about elemental bits of law and tell you the answer to those elemental bits of law. And that would be fine if we didn't somehow equate law and justice, because justice isn't about breaking things down, but it is seeing the complex compound issues, that the, the collision of problems happen. And a lot of this problem, when you're interested in public law, the obligations of organisations to sort of build resilience amongst individuals that don't have it because of their backgrounds or because of their impairments or, 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 or the colour of their skin. Where those things are compound, complex, intersectional, as, as we would say, entangled. And therefore, the, you know, the, the system has got to find a way of dealing with that. And the way I think the system do, does that, I mean, so, so the point about breaking down stuff is fairly uh, obvious, and it's seeing things um, as a sort of closed system. So this systems analysis, this systems thinking that I, I applied to, I sort of liken it to, um, which is very interesting, uh, to environmental issues. Um, and when I was young, an incredibly influential book was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And I thought the whole world understood that book. I thought that it was um, everybody read it. But when I mentioned this to my students, uh, very few of them have ever heard of it. Uh, carrying on from where I finished, which was very few of my students have ever heard about it. The point about Silent Spring is uh, she describes a situation where <clears throat> there was a lake in the US, I think, um, that had a huge mosquito infestation. 
And the way that that was dealt with, it was a beautiful lake, a sublime lake with beautiful birds and fish and everything like that. But the way um, they dealt with the mosquito infestation was to spray it with DDT, a chemical that was widely used in the 70s. And uh, that got rid of the mosquitoes in the first season. But in the second season, a few came back. And then after 10 years, um, all the mosquitoes had come back because they had built resistance to DDT. Um, but all the birds and the fish had pretty well disappeared because a byproduct of that sort of simple thinking, we've got a problem, it's mosquitoes, let's kill the mosquitoes. Well, what in systems thinking calls loop feedback loops, they have unintended consequences. And when you're dealing with a particular problem, if you solve that problem, if it's not a simple problem, but it's a complex problem, then you can have feedback loops that actually make the thing much worse. Um, and now we know that environmental terms, we don't solve individual problems. We zoom out and look at the totality of the complexity of things like global warming, rather than trying to sort of tinker with individual things. Um, and so I, I sort of use that analogy in, in the way that the law is constructed and saying that actually when you've got a particular problem, um, passing new laws that give new rights can actually create more problems than it's not. So I lead into an analysis of what I call juridification, which is this sort of explosion of more laws um, of the governments in the UK, particularly creating new process rights and then creating greater complexities with individual um, solutions, but seeing no sort of nexus um, interconnections with with other injustices. <clears throat> so the problem of fractionating down problems to their elemental particles and also um, creating, and when that fails, creating a new um, solution um, just creates a complexity uh, that is, in, is not only incomprehensible, but it's, it's inaccessible and innavigable for for even even lawyers actually um, and that's what we do I, we use the law to create new individual resolutions and that sort of exports the problem from the political sector to the law um, and uh, i think that's a technique the government's use so in, in in the uk we have social care for people that need disability supports and and pension things like that and the government give you new rights but people don't actually need new rights what they need is a much bigger funding pot um, and so using the law to divert and confuse or through creating creating juridification is a is a i think a conscious political technique these days mm-hmm. and you you had a really great quote from um uh an American judge, Lawrence Tribe, in the Supreme Court case of Deshaney and Winnebago uh, County Department. And he says that we're all dependent on law, but we're not all rendered equally vulnerable by by it. Um, And I think that really sort of ties together your point and links back to Martha Feynman's work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose what I do in the book is I string together some great thoughts that have really influenced me. And I think Lawrence Tribe's article 
um, is a stupendous piece of work on this this idea about sort of exporting problems to the public sector or whatever, um, which were really um, which which and that case was about uh, placing duties on public bodies to protect children from serious abuse, and it had an unintended consequence that more children were probably abused. Uh, and that may seem absurd, but it, it shows the unintended consequences of of creating complexity amongst the law. Yeah, it's a brilliant case that it really warrants reading. Well, it's a brilliant paper. Mm -hmm. it's a, yeah. Great. You did give a really good example um, about child protection laws and how bureaucratic systems um, and process-led approaches create this sort of dysfunctional organisational cultures and can actually exacerbate clustered injustice rather than address them. Do you want to talk more yeah. about this? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, it again is really at Lawrence Tribe's point um, in the sense that the, the, the state enacted laws that uh, said that there were social welfare authorities had a duty to protect uh, children who were suspected of neglect or abuse. And you think, well, that is great. And then, of course, uh, in the case, the young person was seriously abused. Um, but the social services authority really didn't act in the right way. And so proceedings were taken to sue that authority for failing to protect the child. And the Supreme Court came to the decision that you can't sue public bodies for failing to protect children because, you know, they have such big obligations and it's they have to weigh such complex things about intervening or not intervening. Um, that they can't forever really be looking over their shoulder and worrying also about being sued if they fail to protect children. Um, and Tribe gives this de devastating analysis about the absurdity of that, because in this case, um, it was absolutely apparent to the public authorities that this young person was being seriously abused and he was rendered profoundly disabled. And they took meticulous notes and they recorded everything, but they didn't lift a finger. Now, if the laws hadn't existed, people would perhaps have gone in and taken action themselves because they would say, well, somebody's got to protect this child uh, and we will go in and, and use direct action. But because the law had created a different process, which was that instead of doing that direct action, you alerted the authorities, it had in effect taken away that protection from individual action and diverted it to the local authority and therefore the very that had actually diminished the protective rights of the child um, from neighbor action and therefore it had created this sort of uh, serious obligation on, on states to take that action um, which they'd failed to do um, and uh, that that's a sort of classic unintended consequence. It was it was law passed for very good reasons, but it had the unintended consequence of making children more vulnerable uh, where you had an unresponsive state. And I think there was one really interesting case that sort of contrasts a little bit um, with that. It was in Wales. Um, and you wrote about how, yes, of course, there is a structure of laws that exists, 
Um, but the sort of government organisations actually interact a little bit um, and they don't necessarily stick strictly to their roles. Um, and in that way, the service delivery is more effective. Um, I'm not sure, I can't remember the name of the case, but it was, it was just a really interesting contrast um, in terms of how the law can work and how it's constructed and sometimes the implications um, are really negative, like the Winnebago case. And then at other times the construction um, sort of is less applied and perhaps more effective. Um, not to say that, you know, we yeah. shouldn't have these laws, but, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Obviously the the state must have responsibilities to protect children from abuse um, and that means that the state will have to take the consequences when it fails to act. But the problem with the state is that itself has become fragmented into different bodies. Each silos, so you have a, a children's disabled children's team and a disabled children's abuse team and you have um, a disabled children's health team and you have all these sort of different um, compartments and they don't really speak to each other. And, and that those two issues in combination, individual laws and fragmented public bodies, each silo thinking, as is well known, cause these, these issues that they don't work across boundaries. And, yeah, I, I think, you know, there are solutions to that. I mean, I, uh, I have a chapter really on bureaucracy and managerialism, this idea of top-down control, which I think is really dangerous. And in that I cite um, some research I did um, over 20 years ago with a colleague at Cardiff University, where in Wales we went to try, we were, we were, we were sort of funded to try and find good examples of inter-agency working between different um, parts of the social welfare state. Wales is a beautiful nation, some of it very um, densely populated, but some of it very, um, very rural indeed. And we, we, we found it very difficult to find good joint working uh, because we had gone to the centres of the individual um, authorities and talked to their senior managers in their cities or towns. Uh, and we didn't really see much of this. But when we went further away from the centres of power, and I think that must be true in really the world, um, you eventually, the further you got away from these centres of control, this managerial control, the better joint working you came across because the people were less tied into this sort of strict, rigid command and control. And there's a, there's a town um, in Wales that I adore called Tregaron, which is really about as remote as you can get in much of Wales. And there... Uh, good joint working between departments, highly responsive, highly supportive working was happening. And that's because the people knew each other. They'd gone to school together. And if you came into the health department and you had a social department, then they sort of picked up the phone and said, well, look, I'll speak to Alice because she is, you know, a friend of mine and she'll, she'll sort this out. So that sort of organic joint working, which is absolutely essential 
uh, in social welfare was happening because not because that's unique, but because it hadn't been strangled, stifled by this appalling managerialist sort of neoliberal systems of managing the public sector that we have now. Um, and it really, really, really did strike me that, that we've got to get back to that system of not continually reforming and breaking down and then reconstructing individual local bodies and departments where you break those important relationships um, that take years and years to, to, to develop. And then on the other side of this sort of managerialism, you write about some of the individuals who have to sort of go into battle on a day-to-day basis um, yeah. with the different interconnected sort of organisations and bureaucracies. And um, I was really struck when you wrote about warrior mothers and fathers um, because, yeah, yeah, like as a parent, you know, at times you do put on your warrior hat um, for sort of isolated, discrete instances if you're really lucky. But then you wrote a lot about what happens to people when they're confronted with this as sort of almost a way of life. Um, can you talk about about this? Yeah, yeah. I feel re- it's it's work we're doing now. Um, I feel really strongly about it. And actually, we just had a great um, UK High Court judgment on what I call sort of, I call them warrior mothers, although a lot of the warrior mothers tell me that there are warrior fathers too. Um, it's about parent blaming. I mean, victim blaming is is is, is sort of runs through this. Um, so, for many many years, I've acted for parents of disabled children, um, and sometimes I speak to a local authority and say, you know, or, or a health body, why have you behaved this way? You behaved, you know, this off the record. You behaved atrociously. Why have you done this? You know, it's wrong. And they say, well, you know, Luke, you know, your client's a very difficult person. And that is said to me so many times. And the answer is, yeah, sure, I know she's a really difficult person. She, she, she's always complaining about me, too. But she's difficult for a reason. She wasn't born difficult. She became difficult. She became difficult because of the appalling way the state has dealt with her really vulnerable child's needs. Um, and she has learnt the only way to actually get anything done through this completely unresponsive system is to kick doors down, basically, to create hell. Um, and that's learned behaviour. In fact, it's a form of post-traumatic dis- disorder because um, she she doesn't really like the person she is, but she now has this sort of reflex action that she has to um, create this sort of wave in order to get anybody to, to, to just lift a finger. And in that, I, I really like the work of Daniel Kahneman and his Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, which is just an amazing book. Um, and his idea that, that, that we all have those impulses, but we have um, a slow thinking process and a fast thinking process. And, and the fast thinking process says, right, you know, I'm going to kick off. I'm going to send this really rude letter or email. But our slow thinking process sort of calms that down because it's got space and it says, well, now actually this in this impulse, instinctive response, you shouldn't do it. Don't send that letter until tomorrow. But he said, if you've got cognitive overload, you've got multiple problems that you're worrying about this and worrying about that. You've got money problems. You've probably got problems about your tenancy. You think you might be evicted. You've got a child who is 
you know, in and out of hospital who often stops breathing and so on. If you've got those multiple compound cognitive overloads, you don't have space for your slow thinking mind to just say, don't send that, don't say this, don't do that. And you then have the state, basically, the authorities who've created these impossible compound entangled problems who have made this person, you know, with the post-traumatic stress disorder that she has, using that very condition that they've created as a reason for um, then not providing help. And I, 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 in that I cite from a, a document I just, just love, I mean, hate, uh, is from the Australian Ombudsman, which is, is a paper about dealing with dis difficult clients. And it lists all the, all, the, all the terrible things difficult clients do. And they're all the things that most of the people that we act for have got, but they've got it because they're being placed in impossible situations. So there's this double bind. Um, the, uh, the, the, the state creates these problems and then it uses your reaction um, to as a, as a reason for them not dealing with you. I mean, I use it like sort of, you know, they, 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 they create this anxiety. They, they, they provoke you. It's like sort of lighting the blue touch paper on a firework and then standing back and complaining about the, the consequences. Um, and it's so common. Uh, so, yeah, we're doing quite a lot of work on victim blaming at the moment, um, institutionalizing parent care of blame uh, yeah you know that's super interesting so they people are confronted with this sort of impossible situation and then they have a normal human response to it um and then they're ultimately blamed um it, yeah. it seems very unjust and there's there, there there is you know and yeah you know there are there's an ombudsman um guidelines in the uk based i think on the australian ones and they, they both sort of without any sort of self-reflection, just say, you know, people shouldn't behave this way. Mm. And of course, they, they, they probably shouldn't, but they do. Yeah, and, and it's completely understandable. Um, so just I want to bring all these points together. Um, you write that the harm suffered by those experiencing cluster injustice is seemingly understood as a price worth paying for the convenience of the many. In truth, the dominant managerialist approach to the administration of public bodies is not convenient for anyone. It is simply that it is not so debilitating for those who do not live with disadvantage, those who are not forever bumping into its sharp edges to provoke the moral outrage that it should. Now, I just want to ask you, why do you think the injustice and also inefficiency that you write about don't produce the moral outrage that it should and where do we go from here? <laughs> Yeah, um, I can answer the second one, but not the first mm -hmm. one. I don't yep. know Fair why enough. it doesn't yep. produce that. I mean, we all live in a system of managerialism that is completely hopeless. You know, we, we fly on, I mean, I try not to, but we, you know, the, the world seems to fly on before COVID sort of cheap airlines, which give you the very worst service that you will put up, put up with, but you still put up with it because it's, $10 cheaper than um, somebody that could give you a decent. So we're, we're almost in, all living in a world where we get the very worst possible service 
well, it's just better than the very worst possible service so that we put up with it. So we put up with completely inefficient systems, but largely because we don't often have to call a call centre. When we do call a call centre, it drives most people mad, you know, that you're put on hold, that you've got to press one, two, three, four, you've got to go through systems, you end up talking to somebody that hasn't got a clue. And and, and I, I talk about that a lot, about how we hide experts behind these sort of barriers of call centres. But we put up with it. And I don't know why we put up with it. Um, uh, you know, we do seem to be hell-bent on, on perpetuating this appalling system. The, the answer to it um, is, is to sort of look at it th- through the eyes of people who experience disadvantage. And what's come out of the research that we've been doing is the most important thing that you can do to help people in that situation is to give them support. And what I mean by support is emotional support. Um, to tell them that it's absolutely right for them to be at their wits' end, to be angry, to be isolated, uh, to to uh, and that sort of support needs to come from local, independent groups of users who have experienced those sort of problems, survivors in a way, um, and that now that's sort of easier in some areas than others. So for disabled people, for carers groups for um, a number of organizations, um, then there are those support groups. And those support groups are really vital. And I talk a lot about the the importance of that. If that's for their emotional support, um, they can then largely act as signposts and also wise counsel to people. But just sharing those frustrations and that, that powerlessness is something that creates emotional problems and has to be addressed by emotional problems. You will then need to sort of have somebody to hold your hand and support you in your dealings with these dysfunctional bodies. And so I look at that at some length. Having described the problem, I try in the final chapters to come up with solutions. But but curiously, that's the, the, the one thing. I mean, I talk a lot about what else can be done about reforming managerialism, which is making not only the lives of people that deal with the system impossible, it's making the lives of people that work within the system really impossible too. Um, But it is this curious thing, which may seem very small, is about providing uh, emotional support um, from user-led organisations to people who've, who experience that isolation as well of, and frustration. Um, and of course, those people do have some practical advice and they do have networks of support. And the trouble is that the public sector at the moment is hell bent on destroying these organizations um, who, who, you know, by trying to control them. Um, so it's, it's a tricky issue, but but that's the that's the that's the solution, I think. Not the solution, but it is the way of making this incredibly unpleasant system that people who live with clustered disadvantage experience a little less unpleasant. Yeah, and then I think that's a really brilliant takeaway from your book. Um, so thank you. Um, now you've mentioned already some of the projects that you're working on, but just a traditional. Uh, 
New Books Network last question. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're working on now? Well, I'm, yeah, we're looking at um, parent blame, but and because that's the charity that um, funds me, but I'm interested in blaming the victim. And I've only just recently rediscovered a book, not rediscovered, I've discovered a book that's been out for a long time by William Ryan. Um, it's 1971, I think, called Blaming the Victim. And I think this ties in very much with the sort of warrior mothers blaming mothers for behaving the way they do. But this idea of scapegoating, and uh, it's another sort of issue of disadvantage where the state sort of cathartic reaction is to say, well, this is very unpleasant, but of course these people are poor because they are feckless, they don't work. These people um, are, you know, are illiterate because they didn't, study at school sort of thing, that these are all instant problems. Uh, and so it's an, it's just another facet of that. We're trying very heavily to get the legal practice changed in this country about the way um, disabled people are dealt with by the authorities, um, about making practical change. Uh, and I think that um, victim blaming is is something that's worthy now after sort of 50 years of a, of a, a bit of a revival in academic thought. Mm. No, that sounds super fascinating. It's sort of, I think what you sort of, one of the things that comes through in your book um, is, you know, there's this failure of sort of support and access to resources and constantly hitting these sharp edges. Um, and then the result is, you know, this manifest clustered injustice um, and then the victims are blamed. So, yeah, I'll certainly look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Um, sounds fascinating. Now, um, just to bring us together and to the end, um, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Luke Clements about his latest book, It's Clustered Injustice in the Level Green. It was published last year in 2020 by the Legal Action Group. Luke Clements, thank you for your time. Thank you very much too, Jane.